Let's turn to uh, Ezekiel chapter 41. I'm going to take a little bit of a different uh, approach to this particular chapter based on primarily the fact that we spent about six weeks in chapter 40 kind of breaking down the, uh, the issues of the Messianic temple that uh, Ezekiel has been taken to Jerusalem to see by vision. A temple that is being measured by an angel, by an angelic messenger with a rod that is about ten and a half feet long, long six long cubits uh, in length. And uh, rather than go one verse at a time, I, I want to read the whole passage to you and then uh, go back and comment on the certain sections because once again we have quite a bit of, uh, of measuring going on and dimensions being given. I'm going to show you one quick uh, picture in the middle of all of this, kind of give you an idea of what uh, the cutaway will look like of this particular temple, at least an artist's rendition. So if you'll follow along with me, let me read uh, chapter 41 to you. Afterward, he brought me to the temple and measured the posts, or the pillars, six cubits broad on the one side and six cubits broad on the other side, which was the breadth of the tabernacle. And the breadth of the door was ten cubits, and the sides of the door were five cubits on the one side and five cubits on the other side. And he measured the length thereof forty cubits, and the breadth twenty cubits. I'll fill in the gaps with measurements in feet, in, in feet, not in feet, feet. <laughs> And then went he inward and measured the post of the door, two cubits, and the door six cubits, and the breadth of the door seven cubits. Now let me just quickly say, he's measuring the, what, what is called the holy place. So it's, it's, in the, it's the temple now, we're not just in the courtyard. It's measuring the holy place. But now look at verse 3. Then he went inward. And measured the post of the door, two cubits, and the door, six cubits, and the breadth of the door, seven cubits. He's entering now into what's called the most holy place. But only the angel. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So he measured the length thereof, 20 cubits, and breadth, 20 cubits, before the temple. And he said unto me, this is the most holy place. After he measured the wall of the house, six cubits and the breadth of every side chamber, four cubits round about the house on every side, the house being God's house, the temple. The side chambers were three, one over another, and 30 in order. And they entered into the wall, which was of the house, for the side chambers round about that they might have hold, but they had not hold in the wall of the house. That's just saying that it wasn't attached so much to the uh, to the house or the, te the temple, but the use of ledges, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Verse seven. And there was an enlarging and a winding about still upward to the side chambers, 
For the winding about of the house went still upward around about the house. Therefore, the breadth of the house was still upward and so increased from the lowest chamber to the highest by the midst. So actually, the, 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 house, the chambers got bigger as you went up. Uh, verse 8, and I saw also the height of the house round about. The foundations of the side chambers were a full reed of six great cubits. So that's, again, the long cubit, that uh, ten and a half feet of measurement. The thickness of the wall, which was for the side chamber without, was five cubits, and that which was left was the place of the side chambers that were there uh, within. Between the chambers was the wideness of 20 cubits round about the house on every side. And the doors of the side chambers were toward the place that was left, one door toward the north and another door toward the south. And the breadth of the place that was left was five cubits round about. Now the building that was before the separate place at the end toward the west was 70 cubits broad. That's speaking about a building that is on the west side of, of, the, of the temple mount, as it were. And the wall of the building was five cubits thick round about, and the length thereof 90 cubits. So he measured the house, 100 cubits long, and the separate place and the building with the walls thereof 100 cubits long. Also the breadth of the face of the house and of the separate place toward the east, 100 cubits. He measured the length of the building over against the separate place which was behind it. The galleries thereof, one on the, uh, on, uh, the galleries thereof on the one side and on the other side, 100 cubits with the inner temple and the porches of the court. The doorpost and the narrow windows and the galleries round about on their three stories over against the door, sealed with wood round about, and from the ground up to the windows, and the windows were covered to that above the door, even unto the inner house and without, and by all the wall round about, within and without, by measure. Remember, within is inside, without is outside. And it was made with cherubim and palm trees, so that a palm tree was between a cherub and a, and a cherub, and every cherub had two faces, the cherubs being angels and the palm trees palm trees. So that the face of a man was toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. It was made through all the house round about. The ground unto above the door were cherubim and palm trees made and on the wall of the temple. The posts of the temple were squared and the face of the sanctuary. The appearance of the one is the appearance of the other. The altar of wood was three cubits high, the length thereof two cubits and the corners thereof and the length thereof and the walls thereof were of wood. And he said unto me, this is the table that is before the Lord. And the temple and the sanctuary had two doors. The doors had two leaves apiece, two turning leaves, two leaves for the one door and two leaves for the other door. And there were made on them, on the doors of the temple, cherubim and palm trees, like as were made upon the walls. And there were thick planks upon the face of the porch without. And there were narrow windows and palm trees on the one side and on the other side, from the sides of the porch and upon the side chambers of the house and, think, and thick plant, planks. Okay, that's the word of God. Every word is important. 
And we probably sat there thinking, what's all this about? Why all of these dimensions? Why all of these descriptions? Why are we going through this? Can we just, you know, pass it up like we pass up sometimes the, the names and the uh, genealogies? There's too many names. I can't pronounce them. We'll go on. Every word of God, every word is important. We may not understand it right now. That's, that's okay. There's, there's a reason, though, for it. And hopefully before we finish our study of the book of Ezekiel, we'll have at least a better general grasp as to what this last section of Ezekiel is about. So after taking Ezekiel on a tour of the Messiah's temple's outer and inner courts, or outer, outer and inner courts, which we've done already in, in, in chapter 40, the angelic messenger now escorted the prophet to the temple sanctuary. In other words, the very house of God. And this will be indeed the focal point of the messianic kingdom. That place where his glory and his majesty will be manifested in a very special way. The center of worship to which the nations would stream to worship and to honor Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now it is of great importance to remember that since the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 or 586 BC, there had been no temple. Nothing but rubble remained after the Babylonians destroyed God's house. Now Ezekiel had seen the magnificence of Solomon's temple because that was the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians, Solomon's temple. And Ezekiel obviously had seen it before he was taken into exile. But the splendor and the majesty of this new temple had to have surpassed it greatly, had to have surpassed the beauty of Solomon's temple. Certainly it did because of the dimensions. This was a much larger temple mount. And the, the temple itself, the temple proper itself, was much taller, much bigger, much more visible than Solomon's temple. And yet, interestingly enough, the inside, the holy place and the most holy place, the holy place where the priests could go in, but the ho most holy place only the high priest could go in. Well, the dimensions of the temple of Ezekiel here are the same dimensions for the holy place and the most holy place in the temple of Solomon. Same dimensions, same size. And that's saying something about the Lord's plans. They're always perfect and for whatever reason, now we don't understand why the dimensions have to be this way, but they are. And you could even go back to the tabernacle and realize that the dimensions are similar in, 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 the, uh, in, in the relational sense of the one room and the other room being perfect squares as God designed it. So it appears that the temple itself was sitting on a base that was raised or elevated 10 and a half feet above the surrounding ground because if you remember 
the angel measured it with his rod of six cubits long and six long cubits we've already discussed has, is, is ten and a half feet long. And of course we're told at the end of chapter 40 that the messenger led the prophet up the steps of the porch of the temple. Notice, just go back two verses in chapter 40. The last two, it says, And he brought me to the porch of the house and measured each, porch, each, each post of the porch, five cubits on this side, five cubits on that side. And the breadth of the gate was three cubits on this side and three cubits on that side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits and the breadth 11 cubits. And he brought me by the steps whereby they went up to it. And there were pillars by the posts, one on this side and another on that side. So the, the angel takes Ezekiel up to, the, up to this porch going into the uh, temple itself. And the porch was enormous. The porch uh, that Ezekiel was seeing in this vision was enormous. It was 35 feet long, which is 20 cubits. It was 21 feet wide, which is the 12 cubits. The entrance was 24.5 feet wide, 14 cubits, with walls five and, and, and a quarter feet uh, thick. That, that's pretty thick for a wall, five and a quarter feet thick. The doorposts themselves were huge. The doorposts were eight and three quarters feet square. 8.75 square, that's five cubits square. At the top of the steps, those two towering columns stood next to the doorposts. So, I mean, if you stood there, you'd look up, and then you just keep looking up, and that, the, those towers were pretty, would be pretty high. Now, I'm speaking in the past tense, but this is, the, this is the temple that's yet to come. This is the temple that Jesus is going to build when he comes to, and, and you know, when he builds, he's not going to, you know, we're not going to sit around and wait. Okay, hurry up, Jesus, you know. No, I mean, it's just going to, like, he's going to be there. He's going to change the topography so that this, this whole temple and how it's going to be there it's going to be there because the Lord has it placed there so from that porch then the messenger led Ezekiel into the outer sanctuary or what is often called the holy place verses 1 and 2 so he's in that particular area but then the doorposts were immediately noticeable because they were 10.5 feet square 10 and a half feet square that's, I mean, that's a, that's a big square. And the entrance itself was large at 17.5 feet wide with projecting walls on each side that extended eight, eight and three quarters feet in either direction. So the outer sanctuary itself was 70 feet long and 35 feet wide. Now, there should be a picture coming up. This is kind of, if you cut it, if you're facing the, as you're facing the temple, this is the, a cutaway, so you can see the dimensions uh, as best as I could find uh, one that was pretty close to, to it. But these are given to us in cubits, so just remember that there's many more feet involved. But uh, you'll see how tall all of this is. You'll notice the rooms on the sides. We talk about the three stories on the side. The, the rooms get bigger as you go up, not, not smaller. They get bigger. And you'll see that by seeing five cubits, six cubits, seven cubits, 
as it goes up, up the stairs there. Okay? And the windows, you see the windows that it talks about. And uh, there's various uh, 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 biblical references to some of these things uh, in 1 Kings, Deuteronomy, so on and so forth. Okay? So that's just to give you uh, an idea of the millennial temple, Ezekiel 41. So now it is significant then that the dimensions given for the inner sanctuary, the holy place, as I said, are the same as those in Solomon's temple and double the size of the wilderness tabernacle. So we know that the wilderness tabernacle was smaller, but it was, it was in, 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 in similar dimension. In other words, it was perfect square for the holy place and the most holy place. And obviously the numbers and the dimensions have a definite significance because they were given by the Lord. And the Lord is really the only one that understands why he wants it this way. But it's perfect. If God gives them, it's perfect. One thing that we who are not perfect, we who are finite beings, can understand the infinite, which is always perfect. So it is important for us, you know, take this in, but don't, you know, don't bust a gasket over it in your brain, okay? It's, that's, you don't have to do that. Just wait, because you'll get to see it when all of this finally takes place. Which is going to be, by the way, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, so, uh, and we're not going to be here for that, so don't worry about that either. But you need to make sure that you are going to be with the Lord when he comes to gather his church. So you don't want to be left behind and go through the seven years uh, because that's the day of the Lord and that's an a extremely dark time. So as I said, these numbers are, are, are important, significant, but what the importance is specifically, we may never know this side of eternity. So I'm reminded of a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, that says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. So always remember that, that the things we can't understand, those things belong to the Lord. But, and this is a very important statement, but those things which are revealed belong unto us. So everything that we see in scripture that has been revealed and made clear to us, that belongs to us and we need, and there's a reason for it. They belong to, unto us and to our children forever, and that word forever there, that statement forever, is something that we need to also take into consideration because that's not just to say it like we say, you know, two, two people are young and in love, and what do they say? Oh, I'm going to love you for I love you forever. You don't even know what forever is. But when the Bible says it, it doesn't say it in that way. You know, it says it in reality. It talk, that's, talking, that's an eternal statement. Forever, everlasting, eternal. That's, that's a time frame that we don't understand because we had a beginning, these bodies will have an end. But you, if you're a, a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, and I know that born-again believer is like a, you know, kind of like a double statement there, but... The important thing is, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, then you have become, you're, you're an eternal being. Your, your spirit now has been made alive. 
and with the Spirit of God, therefore, you know, you're going you're to live in eternity. The body itself is wasting away. So, remember that the things that belong to us, what we have to know about Jesus Christ, what we need to know about the Word of God, what we need to know about the law, what we need to know about grace, what we need to know about everything from Genesis to Revelation is for us and our children forever so that we may do all the words of this law. That means that we may be obedient unto the Word of God. So it is important. What we do understand, we need to know for that reason. Now in verses 3 and 4, we see the messenger enter into the inner sanctuary, which is the, holy, the most holy place, or what is called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And although still large, the doorposts were smaller than those in the holy place, but the projecting walls were wider. So as you enter into the holy place, the first chamber, that's the larger room, or I should say the larger, it's not the larger room, but the larger uh, entrance and the larger pillars. But then you come to the place where you enter into the most holy place, and it's not as, 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 as large. Well, remember this, that in the temple of Solomon, there was only one priest that could go in to the most holy place through the veil that was placed between the holy place and the most holy place. Only one priest could go in there. No other, no other priest could go but the high priest. And he only went one time when? On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, that was the only time that he could go in to offer, to offer sacrifice unto uh, there where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was. For what reason? For the sins of the people. For their sins and the sins of the people. So, the doorposts were smaller than the holy place, but the projecting walls actually were actually wider. The most holy place was a perfect square, as I said, 35 feet long and 35 feet wide. The importance of this room was emphasized by the messenger to Ezekiel simply by drawing the prophet's attention to the name. What the prophet said literally, I should say what the messenger said literally to the prophet was this. This, the most holy. This, the most holy. It is the place where the most intimate worship is to take place. And verse 3 makes it clear that the angelic messenger entered alone into the most holy place, reminding us of the restrictions of entering into a place that the high priest alone was to enter, as I said, on the Day of Atonement. After a long, by the way, after a long ceremonial cleansing. So it wasn't just going in. There, there, there was a lot that took place before the priest could enter in. And you can read about that going all the way back to uh, the book of Leviticus and all. You can read, by the way, all of Leviticus 16 if you want, but don't do it now, do it later. But I'd like for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, because Hebrews 9 refers to this. It refers to what I'm speaking of right now. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, listen to what it says. Then verily the first covenant... Speaking about the old covenant, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Worldly sanctuary, just in the sense that it was built by hands. It was built on the earth by 
human hands, under the direction certainly by, of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. A tabernacle was a dwelling place. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. That's the, whole, that's the holy place. You walk in, what did you have? You have the light, you had the, the bread and the table. The table representing the table of incense, the table of prayer. And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. The tables, of course, are the tablets of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. And over it, the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, the bema seat, which was the Ark of the Covenant, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle. Notice, plural, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood. Not without blood. What does that say? What does that say? It, say, it says that he had to go in with blood. Could not go in without it. Which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people, the sins of the people. But let's consider something of even greater significance, if you will. Consider that there is no mention now in Ezekiel 41. There is no mention of a veil. There is no mention of a curtain. It isn't described and therefore it isn't observed because it's not there. There's no veil mentioned. There is no mention of a table of showbread in the holy place. There's no mention of a menorah or the candle uh, the candelabra, as it were, the menorah. No mention. Why? Why is there no mention of these things? Well, concerning the veil or lack of one, let's read Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 through 53. At the time that Jesus was on the cross, and listen to what it says, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, which means he died. So he's on the cross. And right when he died, notice verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent or torn in two. Rent in twain means torn in two from top, from the top to the bottom. As if the very hands of God had reached down and grabbed that veil and has ripped it from the top to the, to the bottom of it. And the earth did quake. And the rocks rent or torn. The rocks were broken. And the graves were open. So the rocks are probably describing the covering of the, of the graves, of those big rolling stones. I'm not talking about the rock group. They're not the rolling stones. Is that the rolling stone? I don't know. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't, even, I didn't mean to mention that. I don't know why. It came out that way. I don't even like the Rolling Stones. Okay. 
Anyway, so the earth did quake, the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the city and appeared unto many. So even after his resurrection, notice it wasn't just. It wasn't just when he died, even though the graves were open and many of the bodies of the saints which slept arose, they also came out after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And so it's significant then that in this particular temple, the temple of the Messiah, the Ezekiel temple, the Messianic temple, there's no veil. Hebrews 10 helps us to understand it. In Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 23, We're told, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, what's the holiest? The holiest is the most holy place. The holiest of all, as described there earlier. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by what? By the blood of Jesus. The blood that was shed on the cross by a new and living way. No longer the old way, but now by the new and living way, which he has consecrated for us, which he has set apart for us, which he has sanctified for us, through the veil, there it is, that is to say, his flesh. So think that when Jesus died, and that flesh that bore our sins on the cross died, it was that veil torn from top to bottom by God himself. Because his death and his blood shed on our behalf and on behalf of all who believe in him has made access for us to come to the place where only one priest could go in in the time of the temple. Because his flesh was the veil. And having a high priest over the house of God. Oh, who's our high priest? Jesus. Let us draw near. With a true heart. In full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. God is faithful that promised. God is faithful. And this is significant not only in this particular case here as we look at this passage in Ezekiel, but certainly in the promises that he made to us through his word. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. But in the last half of this chapter, where the temple measurements are taken and the interior decorations and the furnishings from the temple or for the temple are described, by the way, there's no tab- table of showbread either. There's no table of showbread mentioned. And again, no menorah. 
So there's no table of showbread, no, no, no menorah, no seven-branch candlestand. Why? Simply because Jesus, first and foremost, is the bread of life. He is the bread. Jesus is the bread. And will be among his people, feeding them directly. And then there's no candlestick in, or candelabra, I should say, or the, the menorah in the, in the holy place. Why? Because Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is there. John 6, 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. We're coming down to the end of our study of the Gospel of John. You might not think we are, but we're almost to the end of the Gospel of John, even though we're still only in chapter 15. But uh, in chapter 15, of course, is one of, the, uh, one of the I am statements of Jesus. But it began in John 6, 35, when Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. So Jesus, now being the King of kings and Lord of lords, reigning and ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem, is also our high priest. He's also our bread. He's who we feed upon. And then not only is he the bread, but he's also the life. Because in John 8, verse 12, it says that Jesus spake again and unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So that light, there's no need for a candlestick because now Jesus is there. He doesn't need illumination by oil and fire. He is the light. He is the bread. And so we're finding here that Jesus' statements of his deity in the Gospel of John that began with, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door or the gate of the sheep, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. When we consider all of these things, we're, we're considering now Jesus fulfilling everything that is said of him in the scriptures that pertains to his being our, high, our great high priest, of being the sacrifice, which was when John the Baptist, his cousin, said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. So he's the priest. He's the lamb. He's the sacrifice. And he's the altar. Because the cross where he was became the altar for us. Everything that we needed in Jesus was accomplished in Jesus. By Jesus. Through Jesus. For us. And we're seeing that in this temple. Why? To remind us. Always to remind us. But not to remind us when we're in heaven, because in heaven we'll already be there. It's to remind us now. It's to look at the things that happened in the past, look at the things that are happening in the present, and as we see in prophetic literature, to see what's going to happen in the future. But it's all going to take place. Why? Because God promised it, and God swore upon it. Those two things are very important in just a moment. So, pardon me, I don't normally drink a lot of water, but 
I'm going through a little throat stuff. So the messenger would continue his measuring of the temple wall thickness. Now the temple walls were ten and a half feet thick, which would give the towering structure a very, very strong support. And as we sang tonight, a sure foundation. Following the wall measurement came the side chambers or rooms to be built next to the temple walls. If you remember the picture, we won't have to show it again, but if you remember the picture, there were those side rooms on either side of the temple walls and on each of the three levels of the sanctuary. The ceiling and the floor beams, as best as we can tell, had not been built into the wall. They weren't structures built into the wall. Instead, there were ledges uh, had been built into the wall themselves, and the support beams rested upon these ledges. Uh, that's really going back all the way to verse 6 and, and verse 7. So the point of this was not to weaken the walls of the sanctuary. That's the reason it was built that way. It was not to weaken the walls of the sanctuary. Remember that the sanctuary was a holy, holy place. The very place the Lord had set apart for the manifestation of his presence. It was to be uh, perfectly safe. It was to be perfectly secure as a place of worship with the strongest foundation and structure possible as we see there, as I said, in verses 6 and 7. And again, in verse 7, we see a widening of the rooms at each level, meaning that the largest rooms were on the third floor. What those rooms, were again, were for, certainly for the priests, uh, other than that, uh, storage or whatever else, uh, we don't know. But verse 12 shows us, now going to verse 12, and let's go specifically to that verse, it says, now the building that was before the separate place at the end toward the west was 70 cubits broad, and the walls of the building was five cubits thick round about. So verse 12 shows us a separate building at the very west end of the temple. At the very west end of the temple. It will be quite large because the dimensions given are 122 and a half feet wide by 157 feet long with walls that are Again, eight and three-quarters feet thick. Now, no purpose is stated for this building, which is interesting. Um, I don't know if you all still have the charts uh, that we gave out a few weeks ago, but if you do, just look at the temple itself, uh, which would be the Messianic temple, and you'll see the east gate over here. Well, east gate. <laughs> and then as you look toward the west, Right behind the the temple or the most holy the the holy place the most holy place is a building. There's just a building back there. That's that building that's being described here in in, in chapter I mean in chapter 41 verse 12. Again, no purpose is stated for the building, although it is a prominent structure in relation to the temple building itself. Because it's, I mean it's right next it's it's right up against the temple, and then it's up against the back wall. Of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the courtyard. Verses 13 through 15 record the angelic messenger mes measuring the temple itself, its inner courtyard and the building at the west end. So he's measuring all these new things that we see around us. And the rest of the chapter describes a messenger uh, escorting Ezekiel through the temple as the prophet pays very close attention to the decorations, the furnishings, and even the design of the door frames. This is verses uh, 16 through 26, the last uh, 11 verses. 
Now, here's, here's something of great importance. Uh, we're, we're not going to deal with the palm trees and the, uh, and the cherubim at this time. We're going to see some more along the way, and I'm going to describe those more later. Uh, but they have significance. They wouldn't be just mentioned for no reason or else just because Jesus likes palm trees, you know. Well, I like palm trees. I'm going to put a palm tree here. And these angels are cute, so let's put an angel here. Yeah, that's not the way things are done. There is specific reasons for everything that's put in there. And Ezekiel is noting these things. And again, we're going to come to another, a better place for us to talk about those a little later. But as already noted, the veil between the outer sanctuary and the most holy place is not mentioned. We've, we talked about that. And this was to symbolize the fact that the Messiah's death on the cross took care of the barrier of sin that separates people from God. That's the importance of this. What Jesus did on the cross took care of the barrier of sin that separates people from God. The veil was torn in two, making access for those who believe to come into the Holy of Holies. Jesus died to remove that barrier. You know, in a, about four weeks, we're going to be in the midst of the Christmas season. You know, there's always, there's always some kind of controversy, you know. Well, you Christians shouldn't celebrate Christmas. Christians shouldn't do this. And, and you know, the, the, what, do we, what do we celebrate? I mean, what are, we, what are we supposed to be rejoicing over? We're supposed to be rejoicing over everything that Jesus came to do for us. Well, he had to come and take upon himself flesh. So we note that during that particular time. Well, it wasn't in December. Well, how do you know? <laughs> if you stay with us over the next few weeks, I might even give you some, uh, some details that might make you think that he might have been born December and not in whenever else. <sighs> Just something for you to think about. I was talking to a good friend who's a Messianic believer. He's a Jewish believer. And he he's, says, I, I've, I've come to believe that uh, the feast of Hanukkah, which is usually at the same time as Christmas, was the time that Jesus actually was born. So interesting thing. I'll share more about that, but you have to come later. You can't, I'm not going to do it tonight, okay? Because, I mean, look, I mean, you guys would be very special if I told you tonight. And you might not ever come back. I don't know. I don't want, I don't want that to happen. So you have to come back. Okay. So any, anyway, any person who trusts truly uh, in Jesus Christ can now enter into God's presence. We can enter into God's presence and commune with him. Because that's what he wants to do with his people. He wants to commune with us. He wants to have fellowship with us. And we can commune with him personally and intimately. That's why it's so important. That's why we drive this point home as often as we can. To stay in God's word. To stay in fellowship with the Lord. To stay in communion with God. To, 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 you know, to seek his face. To pray. To read. To study. And, and to build on that, in, that intimate relationship. Because it isn't just in a place like this that we come where he meets, he doesn't just meet with us here. You, go, you walk out that door, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he goes with you. Remember that Jesus said, I never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never leave you. 
I'll be with you always. Well, that, that means wherever you go, so you've got to watch out where you go, but wherever you go, he's going to go with you. And he wants fellowship with you because you are committed to him. You've committed your life to him. You've received him into your life. You've believed and trusted in him. You've accepted the truth of what Jesus Christ came to do. If that's the case, then it's how you live, where you live, how you, and what you do in all of that. So consider this. Go back to Hebrews. We're going to close here now with, with some stuff from Hebrews. Very important stuff. And it just kind of ties everything together, what we're talking about as far as, you know, what the temple represents uh, for us now. In verse 13 of chapter 6 of Hebrews, it says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham obtained the promise that God gave him. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. Now, don't be afraid of the word immutability. That word just means the unchangingness of his counsel. The unchangingness of his counsel. He doesn't change. His counsel doesn't change. His counsel doesn't change. His promises never change. His oaths never change. So this is where we're headed here. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise those who believe, because remember that Abraham is the father of all who believe. He says that uh, by two immutable things. What are the two unchanging things of God? His promise and his oath. He promises and then he swears by it, which means it's going to happen. Because God is really the only person that can actually promise and, 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 and give an oath and keep it. He's the only one that has ever been able to do that successfully, you know, 100% of the time, all the time, because of who he is. Now, we'd like to believe that we're as immutable as he is, but we're not. <laughs> so understand that by two immutable things, the promise and the oath in which it was impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. He's not a liar. We might have a strong consolation. We might have strong comfort. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. God has given us a hope. Our hope is in Christ. And notice what it goes on to say. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. The hope that we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Who entered in the veil? Jesus. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus tells us in verse 20, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it's not the order of Aaron, it's not the Aaronic uh, priesthood that was made up of men. Fi uh, finite, sinful men. 
the order of Melchizedek is different. Jesus is our high priest. He entered in, into that within the veil. And he goes in for us. He, he's, he's gone in already. But, and, and notice if you go over to chapter 7 now, what it says about that. It says in, in Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 28, wherefore he is able to save, to also to save, let me say that again, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. In other words, he doesn't just save you halfway. How many of you are thankful that God doesn't just save us halfway? He says, okay, the, red, the other half is yours, okay? You, you have to save yourself the rest of the time. No, no, no. He saves us to the uttermost, completely and totally. That's, that's how God works, okay? That's how God works in our lives. So he saves us to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's our intercessor. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. For such a high priest became us who is holy. He became us. He took upon himself flesh. He's holy, harmless, undefiled. Separate from sinners. And made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice. First for his own sins and then for the people's. He didn't need to do that. Why? Well, for this he did once, when he offered up himself. He offered up himself, not for him, but for us. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. What's the infirmity? It's called sin. That's the infirmity. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath... Which oath is that? The word, the oath of God. The, the, you know, that he swears by himself. Because there's no higher than God. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. He is our high priest. Pure and simple, he's the only true high priest. And then if you go to chapter 10, and we're going to close with this. Hebrews 10, I know we've been there already, but we're going to go a little earlier to chapter 10, verse 10, and see what all of this means when we get back into the, into the temple, uh, the messianic temple, and talk about it as we close. Verse 10 says, by the, which will, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Once and only once. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There are some people today haven't learned that yet. They're still offering the same sacrifice every week, every week, sometimes every day. And they're forgetting something. Jesus only had to offer it one time. And we need to believe in the one that offered himself only once. And he died. But what did he do? He rose again from the dead. Defeating sin. Defeating death. Defeating the grave. Defeating the devil. But we can keep trying out, you know, every year we try to offer ourselves. It can never take away sins. What we do, what man does. But this man, 
after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down as, by the way, he sat down as the right hand of God. Understand that. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, referring to one of the Psalms. For by one offering, he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Through one offering, by one offering. And remember, this goes back to the promise made by the Father. The promise and the oath which he cannot, you know, which cannot change. It's going to be through his only begotten Son. And whereof, look at verses 15 and following here. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Wow. Isn't that wonderful to know? All right, so what, 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 what does that do to us? Well, it, it should make us realize that we don't want to go back to those old sins. Uh, why? Because they're, they're, they're not remembered. They're not remembered. We ought not to remember them either. We ought not to forget where we've been, but we ought not to remember them for the sake of wanting to fulfill them again. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And notice verse 18. Now where remission of these is. In other words, where forgiveness is. If forgiveness has been made, if remission has been made, then there is no more offering for sin. No more offering. Why? Because the offering has already been made. Once for all. By whom? By the great high priest, Jesus himself, who was not only the high priest, but he was also the sacrifice, and it was the sacrifice's blood that was shed and poured into the altar on our behalf when the veil was torn in two. And so the temple of Ezekiel, or the, the Messianic temple actually, the temple of Jesus, for the millennial kingdom is one of remembrance, one that we are to say, Wow, where's the veil? Well, the veil was torn in two. That was Jesus. Oh, well, where's the, where's the menorah? Where's the candle uh, holder? Well, you don't need it anymore because Jesus is the light. And then what about the table of showbread? Well, Jesus is the bread, so he's going to feed you. There is one table that we saw earlier. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But that other table is really that, that table of, of, of prayer. It's the table of incense, the table where we offer our prayers up to you. And it's just a sim simple table, which is simply what we are to do every day, is pray. And the Lord hears. And we need to pray every day for the Lord to come quickly so that we can see that wonderful temple. These words that we look at in, in, in these last chapters of Ezekiel, sometimes, you know, we, we're, we're trying to make sense of it all. Don't worry about making sense of it all. Jesus already made sense of it all for us. 
He's our temple, by the way. He's our temple. And we've entered into his temple. And then he has entered into our temple because the scriptures tell us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit dwells with us. So God doesn't have to worry about his own responsibilities for us because he's already faithful to keep everything. We need to be concerned about our responsibilities toward him and how we live our life and how we present ourselves as the children of his kingdom, the children of his, of his word, the children of his light, the children of his bread, the children of who Jesus is for us all. So that's what this temple is helping us to understand, even now.